parables, and we'll pray. This is God's word. What do you think, Jesus asked. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of the, in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you tell us that Jesus didn't come for the perfect, but for sinners, to call us to repentance. And so I pray you would do that this morning, that you would show us uh, by your spirit the kindness of Jesus, who, uh, whose death on a cross leads us to repentance. And so I pray you would, you would help us be like the first son, uh, those who have changed their mind, ready to do your will, to put our trust in the one who loves us more than we can imagine. Save us from our pride this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what did you think about Jesus' bombshell that he dropped on the religious leaders about the tax collectors and the prostitutes? It's a great, it's a great question. What do you think? Right, I mean, this is, in the, this is continuing the conversation. You remember the context? Jesus has... Uh, basically cursed a fig tree. He's gone into the temple and said, this place is useless. He's thrown people out. He showed himself to be the Lord of God's house, saying, I determine who is allowed to come into God's presence. Uh, this place is dead. It's not working. And so you get in this argument with uh, the authorities. Who, right, who has authority to talk about what to do in, in the things of God? 
And that's where these parables come from. And so in conversation with the, the pastors and Bible teachers of that day, Jesus says something that's both haunting and hopeful. And he begins in a way that I hope got your attention. He says, truly. And it's the Greek and Hebrew word, amen. All right, contrary to what my kids think, it doesn't mean all done. This is how they sing their songs. <laughs> sing twinkle, twinkle, little star, and it ends with a hearty amen. No, it, it means it's true, which is another way of saying, because this is so true, stop whatever you are doing and pay close attention to what Jesus is about to say. And that's when he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting saved before you. They are coming into the kingdom of God. Uh, they get this Christianity thing before you, the good guys. All right. And so, I mean, it doesn't take too much imagination what he's talking about. He's saying that the, the deeply immoral, the obvious Im immoral, they get in. Prostitutes, right? They're paid to do it. And tax collectors, I mean, they were a category unto themselves for how bad they were. Um, they were lawbreakers. They didn't care what God thought. They evoked a special kind of disgust. I mean, one ancient historian puts it this way, that those, this is Philo, if you're interested, if you're a history nerd. But so the ancient Romans, when they picked tax collectors, they did so because they were cruel. Uh, because they were ruthless and savage, and, and then the Romans gave them the power to satisfy their greed. I mean, the tax collectors were basically bullies who had diplomatic immunity, who could take as much money as they wanted beyond what they gave to Rome. And Philo goes on to say they not only take money from people's property, but they were known for taking it from their bodies through torture and assault. Uh, they were known for stealing children and selling them into slavery to make sure you paid your taxes. I mean, these were the worst of the worst. And Jesus says those guys are getting into heaven before the responsible taxpayers in God's economy. What do you think about that? All right, I mean, if you picture the, the billboard, Jesus' ancient advertisement for the good news of the gospel and why you should believe, it's, it would be a picture of the murderous mafia and their professional girlfriends with the angry pastors scowling down on Jesus as welcome of them. Welcome to the church. This is all about grace. So, if we need to pay attention to the truly statement uh, that, that the worst of us are welcomed by grace into, into the kingdom of heaven, which means we have to learn about salvation from these people. Let's humanize them because they're people just like us. And so we're going to do that. I got, let's learn the ways of repentance and belief first from the irreligious and then we'll learn unbelief from the religious, and then about how grace works at the end. So, we have the parable of the lost sons in verse 28. We know the, some of you might know the more famous one in Luke. Matthew's version is much more blunt, it's simple. So just capture your imagination and just pretend you're a parent if you're not a parent. You have two children, they're part of the family business, and so apparently all your employees have a sick day and so you have to get your sons to go to work and so you go to both of them and say I need you to go out into the field and do manual labor and if you were a master of if you had any kind of wealth like that, that that's not something the sons would ordinarily do 
But so, you go to your sons and you tell them what to do and here's their responses. You have an honest son and a dishonest son. The honest son just says, no, I'm not doing it. The dishonest son says, yeah, sure, I'll go. I'll, I, yes, Lord. The word sir is Lord. I mean, it's a, a position of humility and appearance of doing everything right. And then he never shows up. That's the beginning of the parable. An honest son and a dishonest son. And so just pause there, because this is something I think that Jesus is teaching us. He's telling you what the human race is like. He's telling you what you and I are like. We are like one or other, the other or both sons. It's, it's a picture of the human race. What's wrong with us? That we all initially have the same problem, and the same problem is we don't want to listen to or obey or give respect or honor to God as our Father, the one who made us. Nobody wants to do God's will, even if we pretend to and call him Lord. Some are rude, right, like the, the younger son. Uh, some hide it, but either way, the, the history of the human race is, is God looking down from heaven to earth and everybody's just saying no, either out loud or internally. All right, there are those who are comfortable who say, are basically saying, I don't give a rip about what God tells me to do what God thinks about what the Bible says. Right? These would be our non-religious friends. Or maybe you. Uh, those who say, Jesus in the Bible has no authority over me. I don't care what he thinks, so I'm not going to do it. Maybe you can resonate with Augustine well, when he says, those like this younger son, right? those, those like the younger son are those who say, I, I trust myself. I can't trust God. Right? That's the human race. We're not sure if God is trustworthy, so we don't want to listen to him. Mainly because we want to be in charge. I mean, you know what it's like as parents. You try and get your kids to do anything. They say, no, I have a better idea. It's the younger son. A Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy puts it this way, this is what the heart of the human race, those who are non-religious, who just don't want to obey are like, that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of life, which is another way of saying it's my life, and I want to live it my way, and I don't have a problem telling God about it. That's the younger son. And so let's just call them the honestly immoral. They're not ashamed of it. That's the first son. He's probably the younger because he would have been asked first. The older son has more respect because of his position. Right, but then there's the other side. This would probably be more of us who are prone to, to go to church every week. The religious types. Those who say out loud, I don't have a problem with God's will. We should love our neighbor. We should be generous to the poor. We should respect everybody. Right, we love re religiosity, we love prayer, we love doing the right thing. And as I heard it put recently, the Bible's all about law and order, and so why would you ever be against doing the right thing? Right. I'm the kind of person who does God's will. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, and I know I'm better than my brother. <laughs> right. So you might as well call that, let's call them the dishonest moral, because they think they are, and God, Jesus is saying they're not. Those who say they love God's will 
but they're missing out on what God's will really is. They don't understand it. Right, so you got two sons, the honest, immoral, and the dishonest, moral. You got it? Now, if this is your family, which kid are you going to be more worried about? The kid who at every moment, every step of the way is constantly pushing back, constantly defiant, constantly, if you have set up a fence, they've jumped over it, uh, they burned it to the ground. <laughs> you know, the kind of kid who doesn't want to go to school, who doesn't want to go to church, who's out partying every weekend, they just don't like rules because rules are made to be broken. Or the kid who does their homework without being told who has the, a life plan, they want to be at Harvard, they want to be at Yale, uh, they want to, well, do the right thing, be successful. Right? Which kid are you going to be worried about? It's much more exhausting to parent the one who is obviously disobedient. What Jesus does here is he flips it around. I mean, he's showing us that we should see that if you are the good kid, if you've always been the good kid, not only are you just as likely to reject God's will and his offer of grace in the gospel, really I think these parables are trying to get you to think you're more likely. It's harder to believe in grace when you are good. And that's just the beginning. Both sons are disobedient and only one of them realizes it and it's not the good kid. And so here's, here's what I want to learn from this. Right, if every human being since birth has this attitude, I want to live life my way, and we express it by being really, really good or really, really bad, um, Jesus is telling us we need to learn what repentance looks like from the really, really bad kids who figure it out. Right. So lesson number one. Learn from the moral failure, who's been honest about it, who's come to his senses. Uh, the screw-up, the high school dropout, whatever you want to call him, the tax collector, the prostitute, the local pothead, the immoral lawbreaker in our Father's moral world. Jesus holds them up as the example of faith. Which, by the way, if you are here and you are wondering if church is for you and Right, you've, you know you have a past to be ashamed of. This should be deeply encouraging because Jesus is saying, come, I'm here for you to forgive everything and anything you've ever done. Right, that the one who changes his mind about being independent and free is the bad kid who comes to his senses. He, he decides to do God's will. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to do God's will? What is God's will for your life? in my life. And that's verse 32. It says, John, this is John the Baptist, Jesus is talking about from earlier in the book. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't change your mind and believe him. Right? The word believe is in there three times. So God's will for your life is that you and I would believe John's message. It's the word for faith. So then you've got to ask, well, what was John's message? And it's a message that got the attention of tax collectors and prostitutes. You remember what it was? It was judgment. Completely counterintuitive. 
Right? You think, I'm, 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 I've screwed up, I don't need to be told I'm bad. And you go out into the world and you tell them, God, no, nobody stands up on the street corners and it gets a hearing by saying, God is mad at you. And yeah, that's what John the Baptist did, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes came running in repentance. Because John's message was repent, change your mind, that's the language, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because God is coming. Prepare the way for the Lord, and the way you do that is to confess your sin, is to own it. That's why they got baptized by John, is to say, I am throwing myself completely into the hands of a God who forgives. Because if he doesn't forgive, I'm not getting in. That's John's message. Believe that God will judge sin, but if you come through faith to the Son, he forgives everything. And that's what gets the attention of the tax collectors and prostitutes and makes the religious people mad. All right? So, yet we're called to learn from it, own it, change our mind uh, to say, yeah, I too am a lawbreaker no matter how good I think I am. And I'm going to run to this Jesus for forgiveness. That I deserve judgment, but because of grace, Jesus took it for me on the cross. Every last drop, so that now I come into God's kingdom as an adopted son, fully accepted, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, which is an, uh, a Bible's way of saying you are treated like you have been a straight-A moral student in God's universe. And that never changes from now for eternity the immoral one, accepted by grace. So, that's the lesson. And that's hard for us as religious people because Jesus is saying, learn from those who make bad decisions. Learn the way of repentance from these notorious sinners. Learn from the honest moral failures. Find people who are quick to say, I have offended God and I've hurt you and I meant it. Forgive me. Lord, have mercy. Those are people you can learn from. Because that's the way of the gospel. Really what we're called to learn as, as the rebellious sons who have put faith in Jesus, we're called to think like this. Say like Augustine, the ancient Bible teacher. I distrust myself, and I am putting all my trust in God because he's more reliable than my decision-making. As the Proverbs would say, trust in the Lord with your whole heart and lean not on your own understanding. And if for the tax collectors and sinners, you know what that turned into? That didn't sound claustrophobic and scary. It set them free. Because they finally had a God. They finally found somebody who would love them as they are. Because God is good in Christ. Now, that's point one. You've got to learn repentance from these guys who, who are upfront about it, who've changed their minds and said, Jesus has made God, shown me that God really is a God of grace and forgiveness. And he wants to have a relationship with me. But really the parable, this is just Jesus getting started to aim a pointed arrow at the religious people, which is hard for us. Because that's us. It's me. Because what is it like to be the second son who says out loud, Lord, I will do your will, but in secret, just doesn't, pretending to be good. 
What we'll get, or put it this way, why does the older brother, the second son, what's going on in his heart where he says yes, but he doesn't want to do the Father's will and not believe the gospel? So you have to learn what unbelief is like. Let's learn unbelief from the religious. And so I've said this, but both parables are aimed at those who reject God's full and free offer of forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus is on the prowl, so to speak, and graciously inviting his enemies. People who hate grace. And so as Robert Capon, I love the way he puts this, a commentator, he says, Free grace at Christ's expense makes good people mad. Because God in his grace lets in the rotten sons, the crooked tax farmers, and common tarts into the kingdom, all the while thumbing his nose at really good people. Because salvation, it's not about your reputation or your works, or your goodness, or your badness. It's all about your trust in Jesus. It's telling you to throw your resume in the trash and trust Jesus' resume. And that command, repent, to good people, to religious people, people who have wrapped their identity at how successful they are, it just sounds crazy. Because if repent from Jesus implies there's something wrong with me and I don't feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm working really hard to be good, to be responsible, to pay taxes, to, to be a positive impact in my community, to love my neighbors, to keep the law as best as I can and at least do a better job than my stupid brother over there who's not listening. <laughs> what do I have to be sorry for? The good people say. Being responsible for not going into debt and wasting my money on, on the ladies of the night? That's the attitude of the second son. And this is the heart of unbelief. Uh, people who refuse to believe and trust in God's grace. And I would say to us who are Christians, this is describing salvation, but this is still here in our hearts. We are si- Outside of Christ, we are stubborn, wayward sons of God. But in Christ, we are the forgiven, stubborn, wayward sons of God, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, the hymn writer says. That heart is still there, being taught to not wander, but it's still in there. We have a long way to go. And so we have to learn from the second son. Why does he refuse to obey? And that's what this second parable is about. And so you have the picture. You have a vineyard. You're in a vineyard now, and uh, it's no longer sons, it's tenants. And you have a picture of the master of the house. He planted a vineyard, and he gave everything needed to make a living to these tenants. This is God. This is what Jesus is talking about. And as you read the parable, there is a sense where everyone is one of the tenants. Jesus is talking to everybody, a human being. You live in God's world. He's given you everything. But he's aiming at the moral people, the religious authorities. And so... The picture is the master built a watchtower for people to live in, uh, to look out for danger, uh, provision of food. They could use the prophets, uh, some of the prophets, for their own living. Uh, they, there was a fence for protection. There was a wine press. They, you know, I had, it was a small business loan. They could make a living. I mean, basically, everything in this vineyard was a good gift from a good master to the tenants which is the teaching of creation in the Bible. 
that every good gift you have comes from your God above. Breathing, living, having clothes on your back, a roof over your head, a job, a family, it's all a gift out of the overflowing kindness of your heavenly Father, your good master. And yet, as the story goes on, God knows the human heart and Jesus knows the human heart. And in our human heart is, is this desire not to, well, it's the desire to take credit for what we have. I did the work, I earned it. Why should I have to give anything to God? Because the tendency of the human heart is to forget grace. And so you get back into the parable, the master leaves. Several years go by when the vineyard is functional and bearing fruit, take about five years, he sends servants to pay rent. And these servants don't get a warm welcome. They're beaten, they're tortured, some are stoned, they're killed, it's brutal. And it keeps going, the more and more servants come, and it culminates in the sending of the son who is violently uh, murdered. And what is that teaching us about unbelief? All right, and when I, when I read this, I, I grew up in the church, um, I've heard this story before, it always seemed extreme. Right. You come to church on Sunday, you don't see this kind of anger, mostly. I mean, we don't, I don't th since I've been here, there hasn't been any brawls down front. <laughs> right? And so why are the, servant, the tenants so angry to, that to the point where they're ready to slaughter these servants who are just doing their job? Right? The servants will be the prophets sent to Israel calling them to repentance. Right? And what Jesus is teaching is that the tenants, you and me, you know what we're angry about? Is that the vineyard and our stuff is not our stuff. And that we don't live in our world, it's God's world. That we're mad that the, there is a God. And I'm not Him. Right. We're mad at not being in control, not owning the place. I've worked here, this is mine. That's really what it's about, because there was a practice in the day that if... If you could avoid paying rent for three years, it'd be like you had a, a landlord who just left you. So after three years of not paying rent, you could legally prove it is now your land. And uh, really, you hear it in the heart of the, the tenants when they say, let's kill the son so we can have his inheritance, which is the vineyard. Which are saying, we want this to be ours. It is my life, God but out. And whenever the servant showed up, it made them angry because the servants reminded them that they were not free, that they were servants. <laughs> uh, they were reminded that the master had a claim on them. They were reminded that God owns them. And it infuriated them to the point where they got violent. They raged, they tortured, they killed, simply because of this one truth. I want to be my own Lord and master. I want to be in control and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And that attitude is the same attitude as the tax collectors and sinners. They're just honest about it. And so here's what we learn about unbelief. Right? This, this stubborn refusal to do God's will. It's this idea that it's so much easier to trust me. And that there are two ways to thumb your nose at God by being really, really bad, but also by being really, really good to try and get them off your back so you can do whatever you want.
And so, what does unbelief look like in the moral and religious? And I think this is helpful for us. It's going to give us categories. How do you diagnose yourself? How do you see unbelief creeping in? I mean, one, look for anger. That'd be a good place to start. Um, but here's, I'll give you three things. One, moral unbelief. You know what, what religion is for, according to these tenets? It's just to stay in control. Religion, religion is this idea that I, if I am really, really good, God has to bless me. Right, where I can use God for my benefit. And the attitude of a tenant is, I work here, I've slaved here, my, I, I, I uh, sweated here, I've bled here, I've enslaved myself for this God. This is mine, why should I share? Right? Moral unbelief loves to stay in control. If your religion's not about serving others like Christ tells us to do and, and models for us and does for us, no. unbelief is about power about being in control. Right. You have that in the back of your mind, then you move to the second point, that when your religion is all about staying in control of your life, uh, unbelief then shows itself as a disdain and persecution for people who don't believe like you. That's what these servants do, or these tenants do. Right. They, they look at God's prophets and say, I don't need you. I'm doing fine, I'm better than you, and ultimately it results in violence. And so I'll put it this way, moral unbelief persecutes and disdains those who disagree with you. If you get your sense of identity, and I, I'm picking on me here, by how good you are, right? whatever sense of goodness and morality you use, if there's no grace, you have to disdain people. It just happens. I mean, just look at our culture today. On the one hand, we have this ideal, you should love your neighbor, you should honor the, everybody because they're human beings, just because of who they are. And yet you go into any conversation about any subject in the world on the internet, and everybody just is yelling at each other. Disdaining. And it sets you down this, trajectory, so to speak, where you just slowly dehumanize people who are different than you, where you say, we are the good guys, they are the bad guys, you are my enemy, and then you start to, to label them with different words that aren't human. This is what Brene Brown, a shame researcher, says, at first you use words to dehumanize, and then you use images, and this is what happened during the Holocaust, this, I mean, it's a worst case example. The Nazis described the Jews as subhuman, the Untermenschen. Uh, they called the Jews rats and depicted them as disease-carrying rodents in everything from military pamphlets all the way down to the children's stories. The Hutus called the, in the Rwanda genocide, called the Tutsis cockroaches. Indigenous people are often referred to as savages. The Serbs caused the Bosnians aliens and slave owners throughout history considered slaves subhuman animals. And when they did that, because they thought they were good, they had no problems with the cruelty. Which is a graphic way of saying, when we think, when you think you are what you are because of your goodness, your wisdom, your abilities, 
and not because of the grace of your heavenly Father. It's just not possible to not disdain people and look down on them. Grace is something we need immensely as the church to love our neighbors. And the last point, you do that, you think you're the good guy, you, you no longer have the ability to read the Bible well <laughs> as, it, as it's communicating. Because moral unbelief misreads the Bible, misuses it. Because that's what Jesus does to these guys. I mean, one, he gets them to convict themselves. He says, what would you do to these tenants who have killed the master's servants and son? And they call them, well, the, the religious guys say, well, we'll put those wretches to a miserable death. Kill them. Get rid of them. Bring the law down. Judgment. They don't deserve to live. And then Jesus turns the Bible on them and says, have you never read this book that you teach? <laughs> have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. See, when you and I um, get our identity from how good we are, you can't ever imagine being the bad person in the narrative of the, the Bible. I would never be that first part of the verse that Jesus quotes. I have to be the second. I love what God's doing. I'm not the one who rejects what God's doing. I'm the one who praises it. And yet, yet the words that Jesus is showing, he's telling these religious good guys, because your identity is in your goodness, you're looking at God's will. Me, Jesus. And you hate me to the point where you're going to kill me. Jesus is not hiding. He's saying you're going to kill the son and judgment's going to fall in your own words. And so if you get your identity from your goodness, you won't even understand the Bible because you're going to think it's all about how good you have to be when it's all about how good Jesus is. So, conclusion. How do you tie all this together? And on the one hand, you're, you're being shown a family as you're saying, which part of the family am I? The son who's repented, the child who's repented and come to his senses and say, I need a savior. Or are you the good guy who's blind to it? Who's in danger of hurting others because we're too proud to admit it? That's unbelief. Right, but the third point is, is we're called to learn the way of judgmental grace from the son. Right, Jesus is using grace as judgment in the parables. He's saying you either accept my grace or you reject it. And that's, that's now the standard. Right. And so let me ask you this. How do you melt the heart of a stubborn child who doesn't think they've done anything wrong? How do you wake them up? Even when their own words convict them. And they still ignore their sin and selfishness and the hurt it's causing. And you see it in the parable. The master beyond all reason, it makes no sense, this is stupid, why would you send your son into the lion's den, so to speak, when all they've done is abuse and kill your servants? Why do you think it would change? And the answer is God, the master, 
He doesn't just want taxes. He doesn't want tithes. He wants a relationship by faith. He's sending the Son to demonstrate his patience, his kindness, his relentless pursuit of stubborn children to say, I am in this even at the cost of my own son, Jesus Christ. It looks foolish to us, but it's a beautiful picture of God's divine patience pursuing sinners to wake us up. Because even in the judgment parables, Jesus is still saying to those who will kill him, why won't you accept me? I will pay for that. I will take that judgment. I will die for you if you would repent. He's still pleading. So, the way to melt the stubborn heart of a son who doesn't want to obey is to continue to show them grace. The grace of Christ. That's what God does to us. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, it says in Romans 2. And that's what happened. It's a true story. They literally took Jesus, God's son, out of the vineyard, Jerusalem, and killed him outside of the city, where he died like an outcast, like a tax collector, like a prostitute, like a notorious sinner, like he was a criminal, even though he was the perfect son. All to change our minds as he takes God's judgment about his authority to see that there is an immense joy and freedom in being God's son. Because grace turns well, it turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law of Christ fulfilled, that's what it does for us. Right? And what it'll do is you believe grace, you're not going to see God as a cruel boss, you're going to see him as a loving father. It'll motivate you to serve. But for us who are moral, this is what it's teaching you and I to do, is we have to learn the, I won't call it the art of confession, the art of, the skill of the grace of being honest. That's what the reflection is. Pastor John Edwards, who we would all say was a good guy, he's one of the brightest theological minds to ever live in America. And he talks about, well, he says, I do not know how to express better what my sins appear to me to be, other than by saying it's infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite, and yet it seems to me that my conviction of sin is still too small. <laughs> and what, what I think this is teaching us to do is to walk into the room and say, I am the worst sinner here. And I just haven't seen it yet. And the effect is, you can actually listen to those who disagree with you. Because right? you can go into the room and say, if God's grace can change me, <laughs> somebody this proud, especially those of us who are religious, um, for those who grew up in the church, for it's almost like a birthright to be a Christian. It's not how it works. But if God can change me, there's hope for them. And lastly, you know what will happen? The Bible will become beautiful. The Lord's work has become marvelous in our own eyes. It will be marvelous and not crushing because you realize Jesus has done all the work. It's finished. And the Bible is not a story about how to get God to work for you. It's about his patience, about you being the son in his family. So, go and learn what it means that the tax collectors and prostitutes 
are getting into the kingdom before you. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we, um, it's amazing that you would accept anybody. And so we thank you for the grace of Jesus who not only pursues us when we're being bad, but he's also patient with us when we don't see how bad we are. And so I pray your spirit would open our eyes to lead us to, to trust in his grace, because that is your will, to put our faith in your son so that we might have eternal life and be raised up on the last day to live forever as a part of your family in the new heavens and new earth. We're loving you and loving one another will be our default. It'll be our joy. It'll be our delight. Until that day, teach us your grace and how to trust in it, that we are those who have been saved by grace and are being saved by grace, and we love that it is your grace that will lead us home. And so help us to trust in your path for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> let's respond uh, through giving to the good news of the gospel um, as we just said it's not to get God's affection but it's because we already have it in Christ the ushers please come forward Father, we're humbled because you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. We thank you for the uh, gifts and resources that you've placed in our hands. And thank you for reminding us, Lord, that they are your gifts. We ask now that you would take these offerings and use them for your benefit, both here and in the kingdom to come. This we ask in your name of Jesus. Amen. Please remain standing. We're going to 